0: is a thing. And one major way that you can help to expand the reach and effectiveness of this ministry that doesn't cost you a dime is by spending just a few moments leaving us a five-star review. Also, perhaps even more effective than that, you can share our podcast with a friend. We hope you'll take the time to do so. Thank you so much. God bless. Shiny, happy people. It's a new documentary, it's available on Amazon Prime, and it's getting a lot of momentum. A lot of people are watching this documentary, again, shiny, happy people, that focuses on Bill Gothard, focuses on Michael and Debbie Pearl, and of course it highlights, uh, most of all, The Duggars, uh, which was a popular sitcom reality TV on TLC for several years. Uh, They ended up having 19 children. They were professing Christians, I can't speak to whether or not they're truly regenerate, but professing Christians, conservative in many regards, and yet there were a few scandals that came out. Um, So all that being said, this is a popular documentary that is making the rounds. A lot of people are talking about it and so I want to address it today. Uh, If I were to focus, you know, just giving you a snapshot of what I'm going to do, I'm going to try to distinguish between the 1980s patriarchy, and biblical patriarchy the patriarchy that we find with the duggars the pearls and bill gothard the patriarchy that we found in the 1970s 80s and 90s versus biblical patriarchy that's what i'm going to be discussing today what are the similarities what are the distinctions are there serious abuses? How serious are there these abuses? Those are the kinds of things that we'll discuss in this video. Quickly, I want to make an announcement and also have a very brief word from our first sponsor for the day. The announcement is this. Uh, if you have not already, please go to RightResponseConference.com rightresponseconference.com and register for our upcoming spring conference. Many of you came out to our Theonomy and Postmillennialism Conference this past May, but we have our next spring conference coming up March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd of 2024. March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. That's a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Uh, the additional announcement, we've announced this conference before, but the additional announcement is, in addition to Douglas Wilson and Brian Sauvey and Joe Boot and myself, We now also have Michael Foster from It's Good to Be a Man joining our speaker lineup. We're going to be discussing seven vital doctrines uh, that Christians need to understand, be able to articulate, and certainly believe and live out if we are to uh, steward the world in a righteous manner. If we're... To exercise godly leadership, godly influence in every single sphere of life. All of Christ for all of life, not just marriage and parenting in the home, not just as Christians for an hour and a half on Sunday morning at church, uh, but in the arts and medicine and politics and culture. Uh, all of Christ for all of life. So we have Douglas Wilson, Brian Sauvet, Dr. Joe Boot. We also have Michael Foster now do- uh, joining the lineup, and yours truly, uh, Pastor Joel Webin. And one last important thing with this conference that's a new announcement to make is that we're going to be doing a live theology applied episode at the conference and for that episode i'm going to have doug wilson i'm going to have uh uh, michael foster and i'm also going to have eric Kahn from its uh, uh not it's good to be a man but hard man podcast is the name of his podcast so eric Kahn and michael foster and doug wilson and myself the four of us will be doing a 90 minute uh panel a live theology applied episode at the conference on the topic of biblical patriarchy what is it what is it not Um, And really, it's a lot of the topics and themes that I'll be discussing in this episode today. uh, We'll discuss at greater length the four of us together live at this conference. So again, go to rightresponseconference.com to register for our spring conference. The title is Blueprints for Christendom 2.0. Blueprints for Christendom 2.0, March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd of next year. All right, now a brief word from our first sponsor of the day. There are very few things as important as fellowship. Taking the time to spread the gospel is our duty as Christians, but sharing the word over a warm cup of Squirrelly Joe's coffee, now that is our passion. Like the caffeine coursing through their veins, Squirrelly Joe's is energized by their calling and emboldened to model their relentless faith. Based in Olney, Illinois, their association with the endangered white squirrel isn't just a novelty, it's a reminder that his majesty can appear in the most unexpected places, in a humble squirrel, through a chance conversation, and even in a simple cup of Joe. Share coffee, serve humbly, live faithfully. Squirrelly Joe's is owned and operated by Joe Morris, his wife, Rachel, and their seven children. They believe in being a truly Christian business where Christ is in the DNA of the business. Joe also believes in living Coram Deo, that means before the face of God, in every aspect of life. Joe is also a pastor of a small reformed church, and both Joe and Rachel are veterans of the U.S. Marine Corps and U.S. Army, respectively. They believe that Christians should be building a thoroughly Christian economy by doing business with other like-minded Christians. The coffee is also fantastic. So don't delay. Visit squirrelyjoes.com to order your coffee today. Again, that's squirrelyjoes.com to order your coffee today. All right. so what are the distinctions between the 1970s and 80s and 90s uh, patriarchal movement that was tied with the homeschool movement and all those kinds of things, trying to take America back for God? Um, What are the distinctions between those groups of Christians? Many of them professed, they all professed Christ, and many of them, I think, probably really were regenerate, godly people who loved the Lord, Uh, but some of them were wolves. Some of them, I think, were, uh, I think they were just, talking the talk. Uh, But what is the distinction between, again, uh, the group, you know, that would follow the teachings of, you know, Bill Gothard, uh, groups that would be lumped in largely, you know, with the the Duggars and the Pearls. Uh, What's the distinction between their version of patriarchy and the biblical patriarchy that I and individuals today would prescribe to? Uh, If you're wondering, well, who are the people today? Well, (laughs) you know who they are. Uh, They're the individuals that uh, have been in a demeaning fashion labeled as Theobros and Tradwives on Twitter and social media, right? People who, um, well, I mean, we're all sinners. We all make mistakes. But in large part, it would be individuals who believe uh, that head coverings might actually be be biblical uh, and that it certainly has the lion's share of church history. Uh, in its corner, uh, that it's really a novelty, uh, that we don't have head coverings today in the church. It would be individuals who say, yeah, complementarianism, had a lot of biblical roots, uh, but we think that at some level it was a halfway house uh, between biblical patriarchy and egalitarianism simply to appease feminists. And John Piper, um, him and Wayne Grudem, who coined the phrase back, I believe it was 1988, John Piper actually said as much. He said that it was um, a way of trying with language to appease um, those who were anti-patriarchal, um, so, yeah, so the Theobros and Tradwives, the, the biblical patriarchy guys today were saying there are some problems with complementarianism. It roots the distinction and roles between men and women um, in design, but only in the physical capacity, only in the fact that males and females differ. They, they have distinctions in design um, at a physical level, but, uh, but nothing more than that. Um, there's only the physical distinction women have hips right so so they should nurture children you know men have biceps so they should go to war Uh, literal physical war but beyond that uh, the cry of the complementarian if she's a woman is anything you can do i can do better i can do anything better than you but i won't because i'm not called to but i could right so yeah the biblical patriarchy guys today are saying maybe that's not the strongest biblical you know position that's not the witness of church history um and so it's basically you know the biblical patriarchy guys today are saying hey maybe we, we shouldn't just have boomer theology right and what i mean by that is theology that has really only been believed in the west by christians for the last 60 years for well over 1900 years nobody believed these things so it's a novelty so we're getting back to um well, we're getting back to church history. We're getting back to the scripture. We're getting back to what virtually all of humanity, certainly all of Christian-influenced humanity in the West, believed for over 19 centuries. Um, so, anyways, you can call you can call us theobros. You can call us tradwives, um, and certainly you'll be able to find a crazy crackpot here or there who will um, you know, who will make all your dreams come true by saying something stupid that I and others uh, would not actually agree with. But that's who I'm basically going to be comparing and contrasting in this video. The 1980s kind of guys, people like the Duggars, the Pearls, Bill Gothard versus um, the Theo Bro Tradwives today. Um, myself, I would be one of them. Dale Partridge would be one of them. Eric Kahn, Brian Sovey, Michael Foster. Um, there are some distinctions, but for the most part, we're on the same page. We have different strategies, um, but we're reasoned. reasoned and we're trying to be careful and we're trying to say hey this is what patriarchy is this is what it's not there is such a thing as abusive patriarchy and that's kind of what i'm going to be addressing in this video um, because i think there were some legitimate abuses um, underneath the patriarchal banner in the past decades and i think that this new documentary uh, shiny, happy people reveals some real abuses. However, the problem is that it does what most godless documentaries do. So you might remember another documentary that was made by unbelievers, namely Christianity Today, um, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And, and I mean that. I'm not just trying to be snarky. Um, I, I believe that there were probably the same percentage of regenerate, truly regenerate people involved in making hap- uh, shiny, happy people as there were in The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Uh, Christianity today is not Christian; it's just not. Um, and I believe that there are several individuals, if not uh, the vast majority of those individuals, who, um, at least publicly, are not displaying any significant fruit of the Spirit. And so I don't, I, you know, I don't see the heart. I don't have election goggles, but I have no reason with confidence to say that these people are actually Christians. Now. There's a similarity and a difference between these two things, right? So the, the rise and fall of Mars Hill, that got a lot of momentum for a while, and it was saying, you know, Driscoll's the worst person who's ever lived. He's terrible. Here's the difference, though. I, you know, I've watched four episodes so far now. I think that's all that's available right now with this new documentary, you know, The Shiny Happy People. And what it chronicles are legitimate abuses. And that's not to say that the rise and fall of Mars Hill, with, you know, that Mark Driscoll didn't actually have real failures. Um, but I want to first draw out that there's a massive difference between the failures of Mark Driscoll, right? Well, uh, he was, he was mean or he was quarrelsome, um, or, you know, he was emotionally abusive behind the scenes, which I can neither confirm nor deny, right? That, that behind the scenes and some of his staff meetings and pastoral meetings and some of these things, or maybe even counseling with some members in the church, uh, he, you know, he cursed at someone, um, if those things are all true. There are significant problems with that, Um, and an argument can certainly be made if those things are true, especially a repetitive pattern that that he actually was disqualified from ministry. Um, But the distinction between The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill with Driscoll versus this new documentary dealing with Bill Gothard and the pearls and things like that is that um, what's being chronicled in this documentary, Shiny Happy People, is not uh, he raised his voice uh, or he yelled, or he was quarrelsome. It's, uh, he raped me. He molested children. And in the case of Josh Duggar, he molested children and confessed to it, and admitted it, and has been found guilty. Right. So I just want to draw out, those are some pretty big distinctions. Uh, the similarity, though, between these two hit pieces is that they're hit pieces. Uh, the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, by one group of non-Christians, called Christianity Today, and the documentary, Shiny Happy People, another group of non-Christians, um, both of them are lumping in conservative Christians with individuals who actually were abusive, right? So, so the rise and fall of Marcel Hill was not just trying to say, hey, Mark Driscoll took it too far. No, they, they, they have a whole episode where they basically say, you know, the root of a lot of these problems isn't actually Driscoll in his personal decisions or his individual personality, uh, but the real root of the problem is, um, is any biblical theology that says that men are called to lead and love like Christ. Male headship, as, a, as a, just a sweeping doctrine, that's the problem. Right? So what Christianity today did was it didn't just attack Driscoll and Mars Hill, one individual pastor and one individual church. Um, it attacked traditional conservative Christianity across the board. And in that sense, that's very similar to shiny, happy people, which does the same thing, um, saying that, you know, it very much um, explicitly even, not just implicitly, but even explicitly making statements that, you um, homeschooling children christians choosing to homeschool children is cultish Um, certainly they address homeschooling children with the purpose that these children would grow up in the fear and admonition of the lord with conservative traditional biblical virtues and values and then seek positions of influence in the civil sphere run for local office or these kinds of things in government and politics that that's a terrible terrible thing no it's not well, and and yeah, you know my my pushback to that would be by you know by what standard right that, i mean that that's what progressives and leftists and godless people have been doing for decades They send their kids to public schools that are right now, you know, if anybody's taking summer classes, it's painted, you know, with rainbow vomit everywhere. You've got the homo jihad convincing every single child as young as you've got pornography in the school libraries at, at middle schools and even in some cases, elementary schools. You've got all this indoctrination from the left. And certainly there's a push to, you know, you can be anything you want to be and you can be influential and you can be in politics. You could be the next president of the United States. So the same thing is happening, right? It's not whether but which. Everybody's doing that. Everybody is teaching children what they believe is true and then telling children to reach for the stars and to make a difference in the world. So so th- that, that as just a, a raw basic premise of teaching children your convictions and then telling those children to live out those convictions in meaningful influential ways in the real world that is not inherently good or bad the question is what are you teaching them is what you're teaching them actually true right so in that sense i think that these two things i'm comparing them because i think there's a lot of similarities between the rise and fall of mars hill and the shiny happy people um, both are, are not just you know, a hit piece on individual churches or individual pastors or ministers or, or men, um, but they, as they draw out real failures, they sweep up every conservative Bible-believing Christian into the orbit and, and paint them all as nefarious and bad. And I think that that's a serious problem. That said, I think whatever abuses allegedly Driscoll may have committed, they pale in comparison to the legitimate abuses that took place that the Shiny Happy People documentary is showcasing. I think that there are some serious failures. All right, so all that being established now, I want to get to some distinctions between the Shiny Happy People version 1980s, you know, 70s, 80s, and 90s version of patriarchy versus the biblical patriarchy that there seems to be a resurgence of today. That's why this is relevant, why it matters. One, because uh, it's dealing with something that is uh, inherently true in God's Word. Patriarchy simply means father rule. It is a biblical doctrine. It's what the Church of Jesus Christ has held to all the way up until about 15 minutes ago. So this is something that's true and it's something that right now mainstream media is trying to dismantle, single-handedly dismantle with this documentary. And so it's something that's worth talking about. But it's extra relevant because I think that right now within certain reformed circles, there are individual pastors and leaders such as myself um, who are gaining influence and there seems to be a very recent present right now it's happening resurgence of patriarchal views father rule male headship patriarchal views rising and then you have the release of this documentary that says patriarchy is really really bad but all the examples all the evidence of bad patriarchy is not bad patriarchy from today it's bad patriarchy from again the 70s 80s and 90s it's not the bad patriarchy of of you know douglas wilson or michael foster or joel Webbin. it's the bad patriarchy of bill Gothard and the pearls and the duggars all right and there is some very big distinctions between those guys of the 1970s and 80s and 90s versus the guys who are trying by god's grace to dust off this doctrine of patriarchy and say it's biblical yes it's been abused yes it's been abused and we acknowledge that but it's biblical and it's true and it's right. It's biblical, it's true, and it's right. Uh, we are not on the same team. Big distinctions between the two of us. So here's the first. Uh, there is a distinction between fear and faith. A distinction between fear and faith. If you look at the Duggars, you look at the Pearls, you look at Bill Gothard, um, you look at the movement that the shiny, happy people is, is uh, emphasizing and what they're, what they're showcasing, uh, that movement of Christians, by and large, well over 90% of them were dispensational premillennial. They were premillennial dispensationalists. Um, in a nutshell, there's a lot, and I've talked about dispensationalism plenty in the past, so you can watch some of my old videos if you want to know what dispensationalism is and the problems that I find with it, or if you want to know, you know, premillennialism as an eschatology, what that means. So let me just give you a nutshell definition. The dispensational premillennials um, believe that Jesus is going to return and that he's going to return relatively soon, right? That he could come back uh, any moment now, which is true, even from a post or all-millennial perspective, Jesus, no man knows the day or the hour, but the pre-mill dispensationalist believes Jesus is is very likely going to come back next Thursday, I mean, really soon, really soon. Um, And more than just that, not just the soonness of Christ's return, but also that everything is going to get progressively worse until he does return. So Jesus is coming back soon, and until he does, everything is going to get progressively worse. It's going to spiral into greater and greater immorality. Okay, So that was one of the dominant theological viewpoints and eschatological viewpoints of Christ. The patriarchal homeschool movement with the Duggars and the Pearls and Bill Gothard from the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. Um, That is a massive distinction between the patriarchal guys today, the trad wives and theo bros who are being made fun of. You know, because that's what you do, right? You you just you you coddle left and you punch right. Right, that's what conservatives do today. You know, even Christian conservatives, sadly. You coddle left and you punch right. And so as some conservative people that I really would consider us to be on the same team, as they're punching us because, you know, we're a couple inches to the right of them. Um, you know, calling, you know, saying that, oh, well, this is ridiculous. And, you know, this is, you know, this patriarchy is, it's hyper patriarchy, whatever. Well, one thing that I would hope that they would realize um is that, Pretty much everyone on my team within this patriarchal space, uh, biblical patriarchy, we're not dispensational and we're not premillennialist. We're not. We are postmillennial and we adhere to covenant theology. Postmillennial and we adhere to covenant theology. Now you might be saying, well, why does it matter? Uh, Here are just some practical implications that come from those two massive Christian worldviews. Right? whether if you're a pre-mill dispensationalist versus a covenant post-millennial guy, here are the, some of the distinctions. It's the distinction, the difference between immediate and patient. Immediate and patient. The dispensational pre-mill person, um, a lot of times what they're going to do is they're just going to opt out of any kind of culture war. And, and I'm and I'm grateful for guys, older guys in the 1970s and 80s and 90s who said, we're not going to do that. We're not just going to opt out. Uh, Jesus, yeah, we think he might come back next Thursday, but he also might come back in 50 years. And if he's going to come back in 50 years, then then my children are going to have to live you know, the vast majority of their lives in this world, and I'd like it to not be a hellhole. And so we're not going to opt out of, of culture, uh, but we're actually going to engage. And so praise God for that standpoint. But with that standpoint... If you're, you know, a lot of dispensational guys just opt out, they don't really engage, right? Everything's spiritual and it's not necessarily cultural. Um, it's not tangible, right? So they're not really gonna engage in some of these things. But there are plenty of dispensational guys who do, to be fair, plenty of dispensational guys who do engage. However, if you are a DISP pre person and you're not on the opting out side of things, but you're on the let's press in and engage and make a different side of things, um, by virtue of your eschatology and the way that you read the scripture, um, you're going to say, let's make a difference and it needs to happen today. You know, so you're going to be pushing for the whole enchilada up front right away. Right? It's been said you know, that the church lives in the light of eternity, therefore we can afford to be patient. Uh, but that is very much a post-millennial perspective. If you're dispensational premill, and you want to engage the culture, which I thank God for, right? You're not just being a pietist, you're you're engaging, you're getting in. You're still going to have a sense of urgency and immediacy um, that can be good. There are strengths that come from that, but it also at the same time, I think, can be bad. There are certain pitfalls that come with that. So that's one distinction. Pre-mill dispensationalists versus post mill covenant theologians, right? The 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 resurgence of patriarchy that we're seeing today. Among some younger ministers and some older ministers, um, that across the board, they're post milk and they're covenantal. None of them are dispensational and none of them are uh, pre milk. They're covenantal, they're post milk. There's a patience instead of the immediacy. And then also there's an optimism instead of pessimism. So instead of a pessimistic eschatology that everything is destined by God to get worse and worse until Christ returns, uh, we believe that slowly the leaven will work through the whole batch of dough, that slowly the mustard seed will grow into a great tree, that slowly the stone cut by no human hands will grow into an entire earth-filling mountain. Uh, but we believe that, that God's plan for the end of the world is not cataclysmic and sudden, but gradual and progressive. And that shapes your, your strategy. Instead of having a five year plan for how to take over the world, um, post millennial Christians have 500 year plans. And that's not to, uh, you know, to foster apathy, uh, but that's to say, no, we want to make a significant change and we want it to be rooted deeply um, in the scripture and in the world. Uh, we want it to last. We want to build to last. Um, so that's one big difference of these, you know, the, the people that are being portrayed in the shiny happy people documentary, um, they are patriarchal. Uh, I think there's some hyper patriarchy and there are some legitimate examples of abuse. And I'll get to some of that here in a moment. But the first distinction is that they are, uh, the vast majority are dispensational instead of covenantal. And they are premillennial instead of postmillennial. That would be one major difference the next difference that i want us to look at is this the difference between in terms of parenting style the difference between threat and promise threat and promise or the difference between you could say again fear versus security fear versus security and this one is vital and it gets not just into dispensationalism and eschatology but it gets into the gospel and it gets into reformed theology So I'll hit this in just a moment, but uh, one final word from our last sponsor of the day. With the banking industry in another tailspin and the Fed ready to raise interest rates once again, many of you are probably asking, when does this madness stop? If you're interested in learning how to establish a family banking system outside of today's mainstream banking insanity, then schedule a call with our sponsors at Private Family Banking. There's a way for individuals, families, and businesses to put their hard-earned money to work continuously accruing compounding interest and then have those resources available as collateral for cash or for financing investments, businesses, college, and other major life expenditures without having to go to the big banks for loans. Income tax protected? safety from stock market losses, guaranteed rates of compounding interest and the ability to store up an inheritance for your children's children and avoid the death tax on your estate. If this interests you, then email our friends at banking at privatefamilybanking.com. Again, that's banking at or, you can give them a call at 830 339 9472. Again, that's 830 339 9472. Schedule your appointment today. All right, so the difference between threat and promise. Again, this is a, a distinction. Drawing out some of the major distinctions between the patriarchal, and I would argue not in every case, but in some cases, hyper-patriarchal uh, guys from the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, versus the resurgence of biblical patriarchy that we find our, ourselves witnessing today. Okay, um, I think that some of the 1970s, 80s, and 90s guys, guys who are being displayed in this documentary, happy, you know, shiny, happy people. Um, I think some of them were uh, hyper-patriarchal; uh, that it was uh, extra biblical. Uh, that it was legalistic, and that in terms of parenting also in their marriage and the way that they would uh, correspond with their wives, but especially in their parenting with their children, uh, that it relied heavily on threat, threatening uh, rather than promise. Uh, it relied more on what could be lost by the child uh, than the security. Uh, the security. Um, and so uh, that being said, what doctrine does this get into? Well, it gets into Reformed Theology. Um, again, there's just simply no denying the fact that uh, the vast majority of these individuals uh, who were a part of this movement, again, many of them regenerate, many of them Christians, and many of them, I would argue, the vast majority, not abusive. Okay? Um, but nonetheless, they do have some theological dispositions that I would strongly disagree with, and I think that doctrine matters. Um, so, most of them were Arminian. And I think that we just need to recognize that theology matters. There are implications, direct implications uh, for what we believe. And so in terms of their view of soteriology, that word soteriology just means your doctrine of salvation. How does God save people? What is salvation how does God save? Um, They were Arminian, um, not Reformed. They were not Calvinist. Um, And so they relied very heavily on decisionism, revivalism, Right? very heavily on um, the individual and the choices that that individual makes that, uh, that at the end of the day, um, election is not really a thing for the Armenian. It's not. Um, you know Some of them try to get cute with biblical texts and say, well, you know God does elect people. Um, But then when you press and say, well, what does that election look like? Well, because God is outside of time before the foundations of the world were laid, God looked into the future and saw all those who would choose him. And then based off of that foreknowledge, which is not the biblical definite foreknowledge uh, that's talked about in Ephesians and in in Peter's epistles, it's not talking about uh, just knowing the future. It's uh, to foreknow in an intimate sense. Um, God knows everyone in the future, but God doesn't save everyone. We're not universalists, so God knew every person who would exist and every choice that they would make and and the, the very number of hairs on their heads. Uh, God knew, he foreknew everyone, but he didn't save everyone. Foreknowledge in Ephesians and in Peter's epistles, what it's uh, getting at is not just the the mere intellectual Um, knowledge of someone's existence that's going to come about in the future, but it's a a relational knowing. It's an intimate knowing. Uh, God pre-loved. He foreknew and pre-loved, salvifically loved this individual and determined that he would elect them, choose them for salvation. But again, the Arminian, if he has any doctrine of election whatsoever, uh, it's the idea that, you know, that God, you know, uses kind of a time warp because he's outside of time. And so, you know, God you know, before the foundations of the world were laid, he looked into the future. He looked into all the people that he would create. And he looked at those people and the decisions and choices they would make. And those people uh, who God knew in eternity past, looking forward, he knew that they would choose him. The people that God knew would choose him. God then uh, went back into the past and chose them. But that's not election. That's, I mean, it is election, but it's man's election. Because essentially all that's saying is that, uh, that man chooses God, the contingent factor. Right? The determining factor is that uh, certain men choose God and then God responds. He reacts to man's choice of God uh, by choosing the men and women and children, but the people, mankind, he chooses individuals who first choose him. And the only sense in which God chooses them first is chronologically, uh, but it's based off of his knowledge of what man would do. So in chronological time, because God's outside of time and eternity past, technically God makes the first choice in a chronological timeline, but in a logical sense, in a logical timeline, uh, not chronological, but logical, it is man's choice that ultimately has the final say of whether or not God will choose man. Man has to first choose God, and then God warps back into eternity past and chooses man. If there's any doctrine of election within the Arminian soteriology whatsoever the arminian view of salvation that would be it Um, so my point is uh, it relies heavily on man man's decisions right it's it's decisionism revivalism make a choice make a choice make a choice have have an experience uh, have some kind of emotional you know eliciting experience at this youth camp you know or this billy graham revival or you know and 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 then choose choose um that's that's their soteriology and the 1970s and 80s and 90s you know patriarchal homeschool movement kind of again a lot of really really great stuff um but also at the same time a lot of bad doctrine and when it comes to their view of salvation. Again, I'm not talking about, well, some of them. No, the vast majority of them were Arminian. They were. They were dispensational, premillennial Arminians. And that matters. That affects everything, including your home life, the way you view family, the way you view marriage, and the way you view parenting. The way you view parenting um, is going to be shaped by the way you think God, as a heavenly father, adopts children. How does God save children? How does God turn enemies into adopted sons? How does God save? Uh, is going to affect how you parent. It is. So, um, Arminian versus Calvinist, threat versus promise. Um, within that framework, our Arminians not only is it relying you know um, heavily on man's uh, initial choice of God, and then God simply reacts to man's choice and chooses him back, um, not only is it there this contrast between Arminian and Calvinist um, views of salvation, soteriology, but within that framework, um, there's the difference, the distinction between losing salvation versus eternal security of the believer, right? Once saved, always saved. Perhaps better articulated, if saved, always saved. Sure, Matthew 7 is true. Many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, we did this in your name, did that in your name. Uh, But notice the Lord's response. He doesn't say, I used to know you when you chose me and were following me, but I don't know you anymore because you stopped choosing me and you chose sin and you walked away. And so I knew you for a while, but know you no longer. That's not what Matthew 7 says. It says, Many will claim Christ on that final day. Lord, Lord, we did this in your name, that in your name. Uh, But the Lord Jesus will respond not by saying, I used to know you for a time, but I don't know you any longer but rather he'll say depart from me you evil workers of iniquity um, i never knew you so these aren't people who lost their salvation they are people who never had salvation they professed belief in christ they walked the walk and talked the talk but they never these are not people who who actually were saved for a while and then walked out of that umbrella to use gothard's you know big teaching illustration that you know they were under the umbrella and they were safe And then they walked out of the... No, they were never under the umbrella. They were under God's wrath the whole time. Children of God's wrath, according to Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2 and Romans. Um, They were never saved. Uh, They professed faith, but they did not possess faith. And again, doctrine matters. Arminian versus Calvinist makes a difference. And not just in your view of salvation, but that view of salvation and how you read the scripture and all of scripture in light of these doctrines is going to affect the way that you live, including the way you live at home as a husband and a father. Um, Can we lose our salvation or not? So Arminian versus Calvinist, um, salvation being something that could be lost versus the eternal security of the believer. And then another thing that comes out of this is works versus unconditional election grace works versus grace you might say well no 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 these guys of the 70s and 80s they, they didn't believe that we were saved by works you can hear their gospel proclamation you know that we're saved by faith alone that we're all sinners we've all fallen short and that's true the Duggars would, would affirm that uh, that we've fallen short of the glory of God we're all sinners uh, we all deserve hell um, and that ultimately we're not saved by works there's no way that we can earn the love of God by our good behavior uh, we've already uh, missed the mark too far, and therefore we are uh, solely reliant on the grace of God. Amen. That's true. Um, but again, here's the thing: um, is a choice a work? Is a choice a work? Or maybe I could put it in the opposite sense: is making the wrong choice is that is that a bad work? Is that a sinful work? Is that a sin? Like the way that, you know, when I used to argue with Armenians all the time, which I, you know, by God's grace, I, you know, don't do that very often these days. Uh, But, you know, there was a time uh, where, you know, a lot of Armenians were, you know, picking fights and I was picking some fights myself and, you know, and having these kind of conversations. And, you know, people would say, you know, I, I would always say, well, okay, did Jesus die for all the sins of every single person or did he die for the sins of the elect? You know, and they say, well, no, Jesus died for everyone. Of course, Jesus didn't just die for some people. He died for everyone. Universal atonement. He died for every single person and all their sins. And then I would say, well, okay, well, why do people go to hell? Because we're not just talking about God's mercy. In this instance, we're actually talking about God's justice. It is not just for God, who claims to be a just judge, to exact double payment for the same crime. Right. So a person defies him and lives a life of sin against him. But if Jesus died for that person, because he died for each and every individual person, a universal atonement, Jesus didn't just die for God's people, but he died for all people. If this is the case, and Jesus died for everyone, each and every individual... And Jesus, you know, the wages of sin is death. And Jesus is, you know, you know, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might inherit the righteousness of God. So the sins not just of, of the elect, but the sins of every individual person who has ever lived and ever will were imputed to Christ. They were laid upon his shoulder. And then Jesus, he merited the wages of sin, what sin earns, what, what sin deserves, namely death. And he died under the wrath of God on the cross at Calvary and paid the full penalty for sin and he did that for everyone then the question is why do people go to hell right and to which you know the arminian and you know fundamental fundamentalist you know independent baptist is going to respond and say well you know jesus died for everyone's sin but um, but you have to choose to receive that gift so Jesus, it's like his atonement is wrapped in a, in a present, you know, and it's, and it's offered to every single individual person, you know, but some people just, they never open the gift. They refuse it in their arrogance and pride, you know, and, and, uh, and so yeah, Jesus did die for all of their sins, but you have to receive his death for your sins, to which my counter would simply be, is choosing to reject Jesus' death for sin a sin? And if Jesus died for all of your sins, did he die for the sin of rejecting his death for sin? It's so silly. And I mean, this is why I don't argue with Arminians anymore, because I don't argue with Arminians for the same reason I don't argue with my two-year-old, right? Because it's, it's, not, it's not productive. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be overly de- demeaning, but it's just, it's just, it's not the witness of church history. It's not the teachings of scripture. And it's just not, I, I just don't think it's helpful to entertain it. I think, you know, by engaging too much, it, you're giving credence to the view. Like, this is, this is a really legitimate view. No, it's not. It's just not. So I think let's just let's hold to the biblical theology and move on. Hold to the biblical theology and move on. So, all that being said, everybody limits the atonement, right? The Arminian would say, you know, well, we, we hold to, you know, universal atonement that Jesus died for everyone. Okay, fine. But you're still limiting the atonement. See, because what you're saying is that the, the, the atonement is not limited in its scope of individuals who Jesus died for. He died universally for each and every individual. But that atonement doesn't cover all of their sins. See, the Calvinist limits the atonement in terms of the number of people that Christ died for. The Arminian limits the atonement in terms of how many sins of all people Christ died for, because they believe there's at least one sin that Jesus did not atone for, and that's the sin of rejecting Jesus' atonement, which, of course, is a sin. Now, here's the further problem, right? Let's just play it out just a little bit more, and then we'll move on. The further problem is if you, you know, if the Arminian, you say, okay, so Jesus died for every one sin each and every individual person, all their sins, except for the sin of not choosing to accept his death for their sins. Great. Well, then, based off of your view, you would have to say that that the people in hell right now, today, uh, that the only sin that they are suffering in hell for, that they're being punished by God for, is the sin of rejecting Jesus and his substitutionary death, his atonement, his salvation. That's the only sin they're being punished for because Jesus died for all their other sins. So there's no one in hell today being punished for the sin of murder or the sin of lust or perversion or theft or lying, bearing false witness. Well, how do you square that with volumes of biblical texts that talk about how this individual will not inherit the the, you know, the kingdom of God. And it's not just the individual who re- rejects Jesus will not inherit uh, the kingdom of God or the individual who has unbelief in the gospel will not inherit the kingdom of God. But no, liars and perjurers, those who are disobedient to their parents, the homosexual, uh, the, the perverts, uh, the cowardly, right? The, the coward will go to the lake of fire and he'll go to the lake of fire, not just because he rejected Jesus. He'll go to the lake of fire. The coward will go to the lake of fire for his cowardice and his rejection of Jesus, and he will be punished eternally under the white-hot wrath of God for not only the sin of rejecting Jesus, which is a very great sin, if not the greatest sin, but he will also be punished for other sins, lesser sins, um, like, like his sin of cowardice, or theft, or lying, or perversion, or adultery, or murder, or anything else. And that's, again, that, that is an indisputable, <laughs> testimony from from not just one isolated passage but the the overarching theme of scripture is that people go to hell for rejecting jesus yes and a litany of all the other sins they've committed those sins were not atoned for so the arminian wants to limit the atonement not in terms of the scope of the number of people who jesus has died for but in the number of sins that jesus has atoned for and there's one sin that he didn't atone for and that's the sin of rejecting his atonement But again, that would logically conclude that the only sin that people, therefore, are being punished for in hell is the one sin that Jesus didn't atone for, which is the sin of rejecting his atonement. But then what do you do with all the biblical texts that say that people are being punished by God for other sins like lying, like theft, like, you know, so you get the point. Again, it's, I've just... At this point in my Christian life and pastoral ministry, I just you know it's been a while. I feel a little bit rusty, but it, you know I just I don't have these arguments anymore. Um, all that being said, if you're Arminian, you're going to parent like an Arminian. If you're Reformed, you're going to parent like you're Reformed. If you're Covenantal, you're going to have Covenantal parenting. If you're Dispensational, you're going to have Dispensational parenting. If you're Premillennial, you're going to be a Premillennial parent. And if you're post-millennial, you're going to be a post-millennial parent, right? So threat versus promise, that's one of the distinctions that I'm raising out in, in the marriage realm, in the, and especially the parenting realm, the difference between threat, threatening parenting versus promise parenting. Well, that's Arminianism versus Calvinism. It's can you lose your salvation, right? Can you lose the love of God versus are you eternally secure in God's unconditional love? Right? In the same way, you know, the Armenian would say, "Why, well, you know, nobody does anything to earn God's salvation, and so you can't do anything to lose it. But if you press them, you say, "But but do, do people make a choice to receive God's salvation? Yeah. Okay, Great. And they'll say, yes. Well, you got to at least make the right choice, you know uh, Well, okay, so you don't do anything to earn it, so you can't do anything to lose it, right? Well, but you choose something to earn it, and so you can make another choice to lose it, logically, right? And they'll say, oh, I, 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 yeah, I guess so. Yeah. So you can, you can walk out of the love of God. You can walk out of salvation. You can walk out of fatherly affection. You're not secure. Not truly. Not truly. It's the difference between works if you think of a choice being a work, which I would argue it is. Right? John talks about it is not by the, the will of man nor the work of man, right It's not the flesh, it's not the work, it's not the will so, it's not, so we don't earn salvation by doing good deeds, but we also don't earn salvation by uh, making some great choice right the, the difference between Christians and everybody else is that you know at the end of the day, Christians are just a little wiser, just a little better, you know, not really better in terms of their deeds, but they're a little better. In the terms of, you know, well, they just, they were able to open their eyes and survey the land and see, well, this is sin, this is Satan, this is God, this is his love. And they just made the better choice. The Calvinist doesn't believe that. But at some level, the Arminian does. They do. So, the 1970s and 80s and 90s, when I would argue, not all of them, but some of them hyper-patriarchal guys, they were dispensational. They were not covenantal. They were pre mill they were not post mill, they were Arminian, they were not Calvinist. They believed that you could walk out of God's love, walk out of salvation by decisionism. The same thing that got you in can get you out. Decisionism, revivalism, man's choice, man's choice. And that does affect the way that you parent. Whether there's security and promise versus threatening and judgment. All right, here's another one. Independent Fundamental Baptist versus Confessional Reformed theology. The trad wives and Theobros bros of today's resurgence of patriarchy. Again, some of I mean, you know, I, there's always going to be somebody who hops on the train, you know, who starts drinking the Kool Aid, who says, "Hey, this is the cool new thing," you know, and who's who's wacky and weird and doesn't really understand the arguments and takes it too far. But in terms of the leaders, right, I'm talking about, you know, today's present day leaders within the, you know, the patriarchal position within, within Christianity, they're, they are all reformed. They're not Arminian. They're all post mill as far as I know. They're not pre mill They're all covenantal. They're not dispensational. Um, And uh, they're all confessional. That's the next distinction I'm drawing out. They're not independent fundamental Baptists. And you guys have heard me talk about Independent Fundamental Baptists before, probably, if you follow this show at all. Um, so I won't go into a you know, ridiculously thorough diatribe, uh, diatribe but um, suffice it to say, again, there are some legitimate good brothers uh, within that camp, that theological camp that I'm grateful for. Uh, but again, I think it's wrong. I think it's wrong. And that doesn't mean that, um, that it's heretical. I'm not, you know, you can have, you can, there are wrong doctrines that aren't heresy. Arminianism, for that example, I think it's unbiblical. I think it's wrong, but it's not heresy. It's not heresy. Um, Pelagianism is, and sadly, a lot of Arminians today actually are Pelagians. And so in that sense, uh, it would be a heresy. I don't have time to flesh that out. But the point is not, not all doctrine that is unbiblical is, is necessarily, you know, fits the criteria for heresy. Right? So there are plenty of independent fundamental Baptists who they are not false teachers in the capital F, capital T sense. They're not heretics. Uh, many of them are um, good, regenerate Christians who love the Lord, are seeking to live um, a biblical, traditional, conservative you know, life in their home and, and in every other aspect. But there are some problems. By and large, Right. Of course, there's always going to be some exceptions to the rule. But by and large, um, the independent fundamental Baptist believes that they're right <clears throat> and the first century church is right. And everybody from about A.D. 100 to up until you know about 150 years ago, that all of them were wrong. From eighty one hundred 100 all the way until very recently, um, the, you know, the vast majority of church history, sure, there were some good things here or there, but for the most part, they're wrong. Independent fundamental Baptist, um, I would not say, I think this is fair. I'm trying to be fair. Um, I think it's fair to say that the independent fundamental Baptist is not necessarily what we would say um, is a great esteemer of church history. Uh, you know, if, if we're thinking of different theological camps and different denominations and different groups of Christians, we're saying, uh, you know, which denominations, which, you know, which traditions within, you know, the larger evangelical tent, you know, which one, you know, which of them, you know, really esteem and really value church history? I don't think that independent fundamental Baptist, uh would make the top 50 on that list or the top few hundred on that list. They're just not big fans, right? It's let's get back to the, you know, the Book of Acts. Let's get back to the early church, um, because we got off track and everybody's been wrong until, you know, fairly recently. Primitive Baptists would be one expression, you know, that got back on track with them, you know, or got back on track with this other group, you know, but but for well over fifteen hundred years, we've been, you know, we've been missing the mark. Um so, again, that would be one difference between the patriarchal guys and some of the, these guys, are not just followers, but leaders within that movement of the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, some of them being hyper-patriarchal. Another distinction between them doctrinally and kind of the guys who are brushing off this doctrine of patriarchy and saying, I think this is good. I think this is the witness of church history. We need to get back to this. This is what the Bible teaches. Another big distinction is the lion's share of them were independent fundamental Baptists. Yes, a lot of them were Southern Baptists, but even the Southern Baptists were still of the Arminian, for the most part, the Arminian sort and not the Reformed sort. They were big on decisionism, revivalism, Arminianism, independent, fundamentalist. Um, They were not Reformed, post-millennial covenantal and they also weren't um confessional so when i say that the guys that i know right the the theobros and tradwives today we're saying no biblical patriarchy is biblical it is good it can be abused we need to be careful but it is good it's good um again i I don't know any of uh, any of the leaders in this movement for lack of a better term who are not postmill who are not reformed who are not covenantal and who also are not confessional not just reformed in the sense that they're calvinistic um, but they are confessionally reformed they all hold either to the 1689 london baptist confession of faith or for the most part the westminster meaning that there's a long-standing tradition centuries of being able to say We're pointing to these guys. We're not not picking a doctrine out of a hat and saying, hey, you know, nobody's really held to this. But, you know, but we think, you know, we think that the first century church did and then everybody dropped it for 1900 years, but we're picking it back up. Um, no, we're saying, no, that this is, this goes all the way through, you know, the reform tradition for the last 500 years. And then even before that, it tracks all the way back to Athanasius and to Augustine. And this is what this person said and what that person said. And, and sure, we're not saying that church history is an infallible source of authority, like the scripture, it's subservient to the scripture. Um, but church history is an authority guys. Confessions are an authority. They're not infallible. Only the scripture. Is infallible, But even the doctrine of sola scriptura, people, they just, they don't get this. So even reformed guys don't understand sola scriptura. Sola scriptura means that, not that scripture is the only authority. Sola scriptura means that scripture is the only infallible authority, the only authority that's perfect, that never errs. It's the only infallible authority and it's the highest authority. But it's not the only authority because scripture itself testifies to other authorities. And church history is one of them. And so one of the points that I want to make on this, the difference between confessional Christianity versus independent fundamentalist Baptist, which again, that's another distinction between the 1970s, 80s, and 90s guys, Pearls, Duggars, Bill Gothard, versus some of the guys today who would describe themselves as being patriarchal. One of the big differences is the guys today are confessional and love church history. The guys of yesteryear, we're independent fundamentalist baptist or arminian revivalism kind of southern baptist very detached from from the full breadth of history from the apostles all the way up to present day it's just you no know, here here we are we just we just appeared in a vacuum and we're doing church and we're doing it right pure unadulterated and true and there were problems there are problems with that mindset, the mindset of well, we just appeared, we don't really have a history, and also Jesus is going to return next Thursday, and so we just appeared and we're about to disappear. I'm just telling you, there are problems with, with that kind of theology. Again, I'm not saying it's heresy. The, the IFB guys are not heretics, I, some of them are, but you know, but not, not inherently, it's not inherently heretical, and dispensational premillennialism is not heretical. But but what you got to realize in terms of the practical implications of that, you, you put those two things together, you combine them together, right? Not every dispi you know premill guy is an independent fundamentalist Baptist who disdains church history, and not every independent fundamentalist Baptist. Well, actually, they are all dispensational and premill, so never mind. Um, but my point is, when you get both, when you get the combo, IFB and you know dispensational premill, you're basically saying that that the church is something that that is you know, it doesn't really have much of a history and doesn't have much of a future. It's just kind of, you know, there was the book of Acts and the early church, first century church, and we're trying to get back to that, minus speaking in tongues, you know, God forbid, which I, I would agree, I'm a cessationist in terms of the sign, gifts, prophecy, and tongues, I think they've ceased. But, uh, you know, it's just funny that we get back to the church, you know, the, the book of Acts, but minus, minus the sign, gifts, minus, minus that. Um, but really, you know, since the first century church, And very recently in the last 100, 200, you know, maybe 300 years, depending how you're counting and what exact strain of, you know, independent fundamentalist Baptist you might be from. um, We basically got it. We got a big gap, got a big gap where the church was just on a hiatus and, you know, we just missed the mark. And so, you know, we don't have much of a history and we don't have much of a future. Don't have much of a history because, you know, church history is just filled with a bunch of losers who were wrong. And, uh, and we don't have much of a future because Jesus is coming back in 15 minutes. And that kind of theology has some problems, has some problems. One of the problems is, and this is ironic, but one of the problems is, as it pertains again with like the pearls, for instance, or I'll just, you know, I'll just use um, Gothard for a moment, Bill Gothard. Um, Bill Gothard is all about, you know, the, the husband and the father being an authority. And the fifth commandment for children, right? Honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you, that you may live a long life in the earth. Right? It's the first commandment with a promise. And I would say yes and amen. But here's the irony. You're telling children to honor their father and mother, um, but you're doing it from a theological position that has no honor for spiritual fathers and mothers. You look at all of your church fathers all of your theological fathers for all the centuries and the witness of church history that came before you and you spit on them. You despise them. You don't think that they really made any legitimate contribution. Not not anything significant. Basically just, you know, you've got the first century church chronicled in the New Testament, particularly the book of Acts. They were on it. And uh and then everybody missed it. All of your fathers missed it for for centuries, for, for 15, 16, 17, 18, 100 years, they missed it. Um, but now you got it. So so you don't honor your fathers, but but children need to honor theirs. And I'm just I'm just drawing that out, and that's an irony. That's a problem. Who who is Bill Gothard's father? Right? And 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 not just, you know, well, this guy who, you know, is, you know, five years older than me or 10 years older than me. Like what, what about, what about other fathers? What about a hundred years before you? What about 200 years before you? What about 500 years? What about a thousand years? What about 1500 years? Do you honor your church fathers? Do you honor your spiritual fathers? Or do you think that they're, they were just all dumb? And if you think that they were all dumb then don't you see the irony, the irony of, of your children eventually growing up and thinking that you're dumb? Isn't that, at least in some sense, in a spiritual theological sense, the example that you've set? Is it fathers are stupid? Now, a further irony in the case of Bill Gothard is that he doesn't have children. That, you know, he wasn't married and didn't have kids. And yet he's going around doing crusades on marriage and parenting, which, yeah, I just, I think that's silly. I think that's silly. All right. Here's another thing. Another distinction between the, you know, the resurgence of biblical patriarchy that we see happening today, which, again, we've got to be careful because some people will miss the mark. Some people will, will abuse patriarchy. Some people will go into hyper-patriarchy. They'll go too far and all those things. And so um, it's not perfect. It's not perfect. But it is different. And I believe by God's grace it is distinctly and clearly better than some of the patriarchy from the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. One of the difference is that I think at least again the leaders i can't speak to every you know every single person who's you know wearing the biblical patriarchy label you know who has 12 followers on twitter you know i i i don't know everybody you know but i'm speaking of leaders in this movement the patriarchal guys that i respect that i love that i think highly of who are leaders and pastors in this theological position of biblical patriarchy they're they're churchmen. That's another distinction. The guys today, the patriarchal guys today are churchmen. And not all of them, again, but there were some significant leaders in the patriarchy of the past, recent past, 70s, 80s, and 90s, that were not churchmen. What church did Jim Bob Duggar, uh, was he a member at? And I, I'm sure, you know, I mean, like over the course of his life, his marriage and his, you know, being a father with his children, I, I hope, I assume that there's at least, you know, had he at least had a couple legs in the race of a few years here or, you know, a couple years there where he was a member in a biblically ordered church. I hope. I'm willing to extend the benefit of the doubt. But I know, what I know is that, there was at least, if not the entire time, at least a very long period of time where church is just kind of something happening in the Duggar's living room with maybe one or two other families that they're friends with. There's not really biblical eldership. There's not really, you know, a biblical church membership. There's not really an understanding of the criteria of what makes church, church and the ordinary means of grace. There's no sense of church order and liturgy and Uh, The means of grace being rightly administered to the gathered saints on the Lord's day with the preaching, the proper preaching of God's word and praying of God's word and singing and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and seeing of God's word with the rightly administered sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism. It's I mean, it's hard. It's really, really hard even trying to be as charitable as possible. It's hard to say that at least for a long period of time, the it's hard to say that the church that the Duggars pr- participated in, uh, meets the biblical criteria for what actually qualifies as, as a church. Uh, you know, and like from my knowledge and from what I know, which I'm not omniscient you know, and some of you guys, you might be listening to this, and you're, you know, you're in your 60s and 70s, and you were blessed by this movement, and so you feel defensive, you feel frustrated with some of the things that I'm saying, and you may know some things that I don't, I have no doubt, but I tried to do some serious research coming into this, and from what I can tell, Bill Gothard, I he wasn't really a churchman, he wasn't really a churchman, this is not, he wasn't even a family man, for that matter, I find that Again, I, silly is just the nicest way that, you know, it's the nicest, most charitable term I could, you know, I can use. But you got a guy teaching Christians about marriage and family, and he's not a churchman. He's not a pastor of a local church where he ministers week in week out, preaching the word expositionally through books of the Bible. And administering the sacraments to the people of God rightly on the Lord's day. He's not a churchman. And he's not even a family man. He doesn't have a wife. He doesn't have children. But he's touching the thighs of somebody else's children. Yeah, that, that, that is, that's a massive distinction. So, and, and again, this isn't, again, this isn't Joe Blow. This isn't some random follower of this movement of the 70s and the 80s and 90s. This is the godfather, Bill Gotham. This is a big dog. This is a leader. and not just a leader of, you know, thousands of leaders. I'm t- no, this is like the leader. And I, I, I understand. I, I know what slander is, right? I'm a biblical conservative. <laughs> I'm patriarchal. And it's 2023. You think I haven't been slandered? I know, I know that people lie. I'm aware. I'm aware. Um, but there's a difference in, in people lying, saying, you know, again, think about this in the case of Driscoll, right? This is why I'm, you know, comparing and co- contrasting. There's some similarities, but there's also some real distinctions. Think of the difference between the rise and fall of Mars Hill. The rise and fall of Mars Hill christianity today was not attempting i'm sure you can tell if you, if you got just a little bit of discernment you should be able to ascertain christianity today was not trying to do driscoll any favors in that podcast not any they were throwing their worst at him they were and anytime they tried to seem like oh but you know but we, we you know we want to be fair or we, we love just no 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 any any time that they even appeared to be defending him or saying something positive about him, it was only to bolster up their credibility for the next hit, for the next time they whacked him. They hate Mark Driscoll. I know some of those individuals. Cosper, Mike Cosper, I've met him. This is not a Driscoll fan. These guys hate Driscoll. Hate him. But here's my point. They hate Driscoll. The whole series is a hit piece on Driscoll. And yet the worst things that they can throw at him are, you know, he was arrogant, he was prideful, he was quarrelsome, he was divisive, he was harsh, he was crude, that would probably be their worst, uh, their worst accusation, crude in some of his language, overly sexualized uh, in some of his language. But one thing that the rise and fall of Mars Hill never does is say that, uh, that Driscoll cheated on his wife, that he molested children, that he was an adulterer, that he possessed infidelity, that there was sexual immorality in his actions. That's never... And and here's my point. Christianity today never levied those accusations against Driscoll, and it's not because they like him. If there was even a hint, right, that's why the scripture says, but among you must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. If there was a hint... They would have they would have ran with it. But they didn't because as far as we know, Driscoll has not committed sexual immorality. And again, I'm not saying that Driscoll's great. I'm not saying he's great. Driscoll threw reform theology under the bus. He had some buddy buddy with Brian Houston and some of the prosperity preaching guys that that made me really, really uncomfortable. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sitting here saying, yeah, Mark, just, I'm just saying, I'm comparing and contrasting shiny, happy people with the rise and fall of Mars Hill saying in both instances, both of these docu series are done by individuals who hate the people that they're doing the series about. But in the shiny, happy people instance, the accusations that are being levied. Sure. Some of it could be slander. I'm sure. I'm sure the majority, right? I'm willing to take that position. The majority is slander. But the kind of accusations that, that, are, that are being levied, some of them have been proven in courts of law. And that's not to say a court of law can't ever be wrong, but I'm just saying, when, when, it's, when it's top leaders and these are criminal charges and it's instance after instance after instance, um, there's probably something there. There's probably something there. And I don't think it's just, my point again is not just that the people who did the shiny happy people docu-series, um, that they just really hate Bill Gotham. Well, no, Mike Cosper (laughs) really hates Mark Driscoll, truly. And if there was a chance of him being able to throw out an accusation of Driscoll being sexually immoral and it even had a chance of sticking, he would have done it. But there wasn't a chance. There was a chance with Bill Gotham. There was a chance of that accusation being levied and it's sticking. There was a chance with the Duggars, with Josh Duggar, particularly, of that accusation being levied, levied and it's sticking, it being true. And there was a chance, in the case of Jim Bob Duggar, his dad, of the accusation of not properly dealing with not just allegations made about your son, but your son's own confession to sexual immorality and molestation, not dealing with it seriously, sweeping it under the rug, those accusations can be made. And they're sticking. And I don't think it's just because the world hates patriarchy and hates Christianity. I think it's because there were some serious flaws. There were some serious flaws and not just with there's always going to be fringe crackpot followers of any movement, any Christian movement, any pagan movement, but it's different when it's leaders, premier leaders. It's different. All right. But again, one difference, okay, so pre the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, guys, Patriarchal guys, homeschool movement guys. I think there's some hyper-patriarchy there. I'll get to some of that. And then the patriarchal guys, the resurgence of patriarchy, the guys today, just to recap the differences, pre-mill, post-mill, dispensational, covenantal, Arminian, decisionism, revivalism, versus reformed, security of the believer, grace and tota independent fundamentalist uh fundamental baptist confessional historical reformed christianity um and baptizing someone in your backyard swimming pool as a dad because at the end of the day dads are the ultimate authority in all the world and so we're baptizing someone in our swimming pool and we're giving you know salting crackers and Walter's grape juice on the couch, and it's just our family, and that's church versus churchmen. The biblical patriarchy guys today are churchmen. Every single one of us is a local pastor in a confessionally reformed church that rightly administers the word and sacrament. They can trace our views throughout 2,000 years of church history, and then again, certainly in the scripture itself. I'm just saying these are some big distinctions. These are big distinctions. All right. Michael and Debbie Pearl. Some people love the pearls. Um, I don't know. I, I, I'm i not going to speak to a bunch of stuff because I want to speak to what I know. I want to speak to what I know. Um, I, what I, know. I am... So if you ask, Joel, were you shaped by the Pearls ministry? I I did not even know who they were. Didn't, not even the names of these individuals until very recently. So no. I'm not shaped by their ministry whatsoever. The little bit that I've seen of it are clips, which I understand can be taken out of context, but even given the fact that things can be taken out of context, I've been taken out of context. I know what that's like. Still, the clips themselves are just... I don't know, it's, it's bad, it's weird, it's just weird, so I'll speak to a couple things, at least one thing that's kind of going around right now in the Twitterverse, and you know, and it was one of the things in the documentary, the shiny happy people doc, blanket time, all right, let's talk about blanket time, this is the idea of where you put a child, and not just a child, but you put a baby, right, right, six months old. That's literally what was said. That's a quote. Six months old, the baby, you know, is, by that time has you know just learned how to sit up. You sit the baby on a blanket, and it's not just the baby's on a blanket, you know, and has some toys around them to entertain themselves because mama's doing something and she's trying to go as fast as she can. She's she'll come back, you know, and be with the baby. No, this is um, the baby's on the blanket. And the baby's being told to be still, to be content. I mean, the baby can wiggle a little bit, but the baby needs to be on the blanket. The baby needs to, you know, for the most part, be still. And we're going to put a toy in front of the baby, on the blanket uh, that the baby wants. And again, we're, we're not talking about you know 16-year-old child. we're talking about a s- six months, seven months, eight months. And uh, you're putting it on the blanket, and you're telling the baby, "Don't you touch this?" And it's just just to test the baby, train the baby. Right. Um, and if the baby touches it, you slap their hand. Now, my position is not that the slap on the hand is abusive. Um, so my position is not that, you know, that that this group, that this movement was saying, you know, like, you take a crowbar and you hit the baby. And like, of course, that that's slander. I don't think that like this was some horrible, violent, physically violent action. The Bible affirms spanking. I affirm spanking. Um, what I don't like is is, this is what I'll say. You know, in this instance, I'm with Doug Wilson, not with the pearls. I'm with Doug Wilson, not with the pearls. Um, Doug Wilson has talked about this and said, it's important that we remember that Adam and Eve, when they're placed in the garden, there is a tree. And this tree is not just in some far off corner of the garden, but the Bible says, you know, this tree that's off limits, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die, is placed in the midst of the garden. It's in the middle of the garden. It's the tree of the knowledge of the good of uh, the, the knowledge of good and evil. And it's in the midst of the garden. But here's the deal. Everything else in the garden is is a yes, is the way that Doug says. He says, there's only one no. Every other tree. In fact, that was the lie of the serpent. The, The serpent comes, slithers up to Eve and says, has God said, you know, that you can't eat the fruit of any tree? Right? He twists it, tries to make God to be capricious and cruel. Um. God said you can't eat of any tree in the garden. Isn't that, isn't that spiteful and, and, and mean? And, um, but that's not what God had said. God said you can't eat of one tree. Which means in you know, God defining one no, God was uh, consequently defining everything else as a yes. So you can, you can eat from a million trees. God is saying yes to a million trees and saying no to, to one, just one. And so, um, with the baby blanket thing, the baby can't walk, and, you know? And if it's a young baby, six months, seven months, which that, that is an age, six months was cited, um, then you're talking about a baby that can't even crawl. And, and so you're not talking about a scenario where the baby has a million options available there's a million toys that the baby can play with, but one toy that the baby can't play with. No, in this scenario, there's only one thing within their reach, and it's a no. See, with Adam and Eve, there's there's everything is within their reach, and it's a yes, except for one. In the baby blanket time scenario, only one thing is within their reach, and it's a no. I, I, I think that's bad parenting. I think it's bad parenting. Here's another distinction. Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are not placed. They're not made and placed in the garden as six-month-old babies. So there is one no. If you eat of this tree, the day you you eat of it, you shall surely die. And God is giving his law word about the one tree that's off limits. He's giving this word to Adam. And Adam is not a six-month-old baby. Adam is not a toddler. Adam is a grown man. And there is a distinction, and this, parents need to understand this. Parents within the patriarchal conservative reform camp, which I'm a part of, proudly, you need to understand, especially with young children, I, I believe that there's a place for disciplining young children. There is. You need to start young. But you need to understand there is a distinction between finitude and fallenness. Finitude and fallenness. God knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. It's not just that God knows our nature in the sense that we're fallen and that we've rebelled against. God doesn't just know that we're sinful. He knows that we're finite. Finitude versus fallenness. Adam and Eve, their fall was, was a fall. It, it wasn't f- mere finitude. It wasn't just that they were creatures. It's that they chose to sin. It really was sin. It's not a lack of understanding. It's not a disconnect in communication. It's not some kind of discrepancy in their rationale and ability to. It, it, it's, it's not about ability. They just, they willfully chose to sin against God. That's what it is. That's not necessarily the case with a six-month-old baby. Now, that's not to say, again, I think discipline starts early. I think it does. And I think babies can understand a lot more than we give them credit for. Uh, In the case of my children, I'm a father of four, my wife and I, uh, we started discipline. Not for everything, but we would say, okay, there's a couple things that, that we believe at this stage of life are worthy of discipline. And that stage of life beginning was usually around 10 to 12 months. So right around the one-year mark, where it's no longer just the baby's crying because they're hungry, but it's no, the, the baby's crying because they're not getting their way. And you can tell the difference between defiance and finitude. You can tell the difference between hunger and a fit. And about that age, you know, that's when the baby starts rearing and arching its back and screaming, you know, not, not because they're hungry or not because they're hurting, um, not because they just need to be comforted, but because... You told them no. Uh, you, you did not give them what they wanted. And you actually had a reason for it. You weren't just testing them trying them and setting them up to fail. You, you, know, the, you were being a good parent and the baby's just sinning. So I believe in, you know, in disciplining children. I believe in starting young. Um, another Doug Wilson-ism, uh, you know, he says that uh, the vast majority, if not all, Of the spankings that parents give to their children uh, should occur um, before the you know from from ages zero to five years old and you know my oldest right now is going to be turning six in a few months and i can tell you that um that's what it's been and that's not to say that oh well now you know my my soon-to-be six-year-old is sinless no but it's but but she has she's amazing she's amazing she's obedient. She honors her father and mother because we were diligent by God's grace. It's not because we're great, but by God's grace, we had, you know, some, you know, we're turned on to some, some good curriculum and good books and, and, you know, good mentoring when it comes to parenting young children early on. And so we didn't waste time. Uh, a, A lot of parents who are grounding their teenagers, Right, so they're 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 fifteen year old, sixteen year old. You're grounded for a month. Know this, know that, um, and their and their teenagers are just just a terror, just a wreck, you know. And to, to the point where even Christians, it's become this common expression of like, well, you know, kids are great, but wait till the teenage years. No, I reject that. No, the teenage years can be can be great. I know plenty of people. I'm not there yet. I, I admit that. But I know plenty of Christian parents who have teenagers, and and by their own admission, they're, they're constantly saying, it is such a blessing and joy to have a 14-year-old, a 15-year-old, 16-year-old. Our children, our teenage children are wonderful, but these are parents who disciplined when the children were young. The parents who have teenagers who are a nightmare are usually the parents who did not discipline, right? So the parents who... And see, this is the irony. So the, the parents who say well, it would be abusive to spank my three-year-old, but now you're locking your 13-year-old in their room. And that's not abusive. So I'm going to ground my teenager for a month. But God forbid I I barely slap the hand of my 18-month-old. And and, and that's the I mean it's a tragic irony. I mean, the Bible says for a reason, right? People say, you know, spoil the, the 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 child or spare the rod, spoil the child. That's not a Bible verse. I understand. Um, I'll tell you what is a Bible verse: He who spares the rod hates his child. So you're right. Spare the rod, spoil the child is not a Bible verse. But sparing the rod, being hatred of the child, is a Bible verse. It is. And this is not my definition. I'm not trying to. This is not a hashtag-based moment where I'm trying to just you know provoke. I, according to God's word, God's standard, um, a lot of professing Christians, they, they hate their children. Gentle parenting, I'm going to do gentle parenting. You mean hateful parenting? Do you mean hateful parenting according to God's standard? Because God tells us what is loving towards children and what is hating children. And in that instance, these guys from the 70s and 80s and 90s, they were right. They weren't, they're, they're not wrong about everything. There were a lot of good Christian saints in these movements, from what, what I can tell, who, who rightly understood that discipline is loving, so long as it's done biblically and it's done well. And that's true. That's absolutely true. But then some of them, like the pearls, on record, in their books, in their literature, talk about continuing to discipline the child all the way up until they're eighteen. And, and not just discipline, but discipline specifically in the vein of spanking, physical, corporal punishment. And I would just, I disagree. And I don't know anybody, again, I'm just, I'm just letting you know some of the distinctions between these patriarchal guys and the patriarchal guys today, this resurgence of biblical patriarchy. We are Reformed. We're not Arminian. We're confessional. We're not independent fundamentalist baptist we are post-male we're not pre-male we're covenantal we're not dispensational and 99% of our spanking happens from 0 to 5 years old and not at 16, 17, and 18 years old and those are some big differences and the patriarchal guys that I know today we don't do blanket time we don't like that not a fan because we don't see that as what God does. That God only makes one available resource for us and then demonizes it. No, God makes a million available resources for us and calls it good and blesses it and holds it out to us for our enjoyment and says that one thing is off limits. And God didn't do that with six-month-olds. He did it with adults those are radical differences so anyways um those are some of my thoughts uh let me see i might have had one more thing i wrote down notes this time oh you know what the duggars quiverful or you might be familiar with the term uh onanism uh this is something that i had to really think about um because i had uh some individuals in the church that I pastored in Southern California who who hopped on this train. And so, you know, I was working through that and, and you know, theologically giving it a fair shake, you know, because everyone's like, well, you know, that's ridiculous. Well, okay, we think a lot of things are ridiculous because we've been steeped in feminism. Um, and so, you know, looking at, you know, all right, do Christians in the last 15 minutes think this is ridiculous? Or, you know, is this the witness of church history? And what is the Bible? Most importantly, what does that say? Um, I think that in general, Christians today—not just people, but even Christians today—despise uh, children. They want to have, you know, 1.5 children. They—they, they, at the end of the day, they don't really think that children are a blessing, and that the man whose quiver is full is exceedingly blessed. Right? The children are a heritage from the Lord. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full. That a man is blessed if he has many children. So I, I think that the headline of the story, the headline report. Again, not just from the pagans, but from evangelical Christians in the West today. The headline report is uh, that they do not view children as a blessing. Not in such a way that they would see it as an added blessing to have several children. Um, And there's a legitimate argument to be made for what other blessing, all right? So if children are a blessing, a heritage from the Lord, and a man is blessed if his quiver is full, right? Not just, you know, white picket fence and 1.5 children, but, but a full quiver, many children. That man is exceedingly blessed. If that's the case, well, there are other things in scripture that are listed as blessings. What other blessing in life would we want to mitigate, right? So money is not the root of all evil or all kinds of evil. Rather, the scripture says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So greed, the love of money, idolatry of money. But money itself is not inherently good or bad. Money itself, if used wisely, is actually a blessing. It's a resource. It's merely representative. Money is just like God giving you cattle or food or clothes or house or land. And those aren't bad things. These are things that natural resources that God made. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And if he gives those thousand cattle to someone that he loves, that's, that's great. That's great. So, christian um are we actively seeking consciously seeking intentionally making certain decisions to say um without you know i i i could make a million dollars a year without without sinning without sinning without neglecting something that the lord's called me to and i could do it ethically and all these kinds of things and still be with my wife and still be with my children and still be involved in my church and still fear the lord and i can make a million dollars a year or I can make $100,000 a year. And I have intentionally, deliberately opted for making $100,000 not a million. Because I see this as a blessing, but I just want to put a cap on that blessing. I want to mitigate that blessing. I want to harness that blessing, you know, shrink that blessing. I don't want to have too much blessing here. Right? What other blessing is my point? What other blessing would we go to such great lengths to shrink? And yet the Bible says that children are a premier blessing of the Lord. And again, I'm not talking about the pagans. I'm not talking about the progressives. I'm talking about evangelical Christians. Our Bible says, Psalm 127, children are a heritage from the Lord, a blessing from the Lord, and a man whose quiver is full, he is exceedingly blessed. And we go to great lengths to make sure that we mitigate that blessing from the Lord. So that's, that's the headline right? See, one of the problems with all this kind of stuff is the footnote becomes the headline, the headline becomes the footnote, all right? So the headline right now is feminism. The headline in our culture today and the headline in the church today is feminism, not abusive patriarchy. Let's get that straight. And the headline in the church, not just the world, but the church today is despising children, not having too many children. And that's the whole problem, just for the record. That's the whole problem with the rise and fall of Mars Hill and shiny, happy people. That's my biggest problem with these things, right? So I've spent all this time distinguishing, saying, okay, the patriarchal guys today, there are some radical differences, significant doctrinal differences and behavioral differences, character differences, parenting differences from these patriarchal guys and myself and other, you know, today's patriarchal guys. But having established that, that there are distinctions and the distinctions matter, having established that, let me tell you what I hate, what I hate about the rise and fall of Mars Hill, what I hate about shiny, happy people. What I hate is that they lie and and they may not lie with each little detail. The lie is not with the individual trees, the individual statements, this statement being made. The lie is the forest, not an individual tree, but the whole forest. The lie is just the headline of the story because the headline of the story is, you know, there's an epidemic of harsh, quarrelsome pastors in the church who are being divisive. (laughs) No, there's an epidemic of limp wristed, effeminate, cowardly pastors in the church You know that that's the epidemic. There's an epidemic of abusive, patriarchal. No, there's an epidemic of feminist. You know that's the epidemic. And as it pertains to men, there's an epidemic of apathy. Not not men being abusive, but men in their God-ordained role of headship being apathetic, abdicating their authority. Not abusing that authority, but abdicating that authority. Men can sin in both directions. They can sin as head of their wife and head of their children. They can sin by abuse and they can sin by abdicating. We just got to stand back for a second and look at the forest, not just one isolated tree. Look at the forest and just be honest. In America, in the United States of America, in 2023, the year of our Lord, what's the big failure what's the headline of the story right now with men is it that men are just too masculine too domineering too aggressive right abusive in their authority and leadership is that the headline sure we can uh, there there are always some but is that the headline or is the headline that men are cowardly weak abdicating responsibility, not living in their authority whatsoever, and effeminate. Not overly masculine, but effeminate. Not masculine enough. And that's my big problem. That was my problem with, you know, the Christianity Today, you know, joke of a podcast with Mars Hill. And that's my problem with the happy, you know, shiny, happy people thing right now on Amazon Prime. Um, you make the footnote, the headline, it's gaslighting. It's just, it's, which shouldn't shock us. It's the same play from the political left. It's the same thing that Democrats do, right? It's the same kind of documentary that Jen Psaki would make, Right which shouldn't be shocking at all because Christianity today is filled with a bunch of Democrats who vote for abortion, pro-abortion candidates, all the way to birth. And the shiny happy people are a bunch of God-hating Democrats. Of course they are. And the people who are being interviewed are have purple and pink hair. Um... So yeah, I I think that we need to be discerning as Christians and we need to know when we're being gaslighted. We need to have enough discernment to say, I know this play. I I know this play. This is just your typical progressive, God-hating, all Christians are bad, all men are bad, male headship across the board is bad, patriarchy across the board is bad, homeschooling is cultish parenting is bad that's what it is that's what this documentary is trying to accomplish that's the point that's the goal and it'll prove to be successful with a lot of people i think as bible believing jesus loving family loving church loving christians we need to be able to say look we need to be able to say exactly what i said in this podcast yeah, I disagree with this. I disagree with that. And this is a distinction. That's a distinction. That's a distinction. That's a distinction. There are real, objective, theological distinctions, and they matter. And yet, two things can be simultaneously true. I am not the Pearls. I'm not Bill Gotham. I'm not the Duggars. But I also know that Amazon hates Jesus. And that they're not trying to simply carefully, in a fair, good faith way, draw out real abuses from some individuals while acknowledging that Christianity as a whole is a positive, a net positive you know, influence in the world today. No. They're not trying to take out Bill Gothard. They're trying to take out you. They're trying to take out me. And some will say, yeah, they want to take out you, Joel. That's because you're patriarchal. No, no, no. You're complimentarian with your one million nuances yeah they hate you too right that's what's so funny with, you know i think of like with g3 and the christian nationalism thing which you know by god's grace we're having some conversations offline and i, I feel hopeful we'll see what happens but all that means said good brothers good brothers but you know one of the things that i've said is that josh bice you know if if the left is completely take over if the neo Marxists take over and the you know and we all get shipped off to the gulag. The irony is that Josh Bice will have spent, you know, all the time that he spent to nuance and to be clear that I am not a Christian nationalist and yet me and him will be sharing a cell in the gulag together. The the, the pagans don't care. The pagans aren't looking at G3 and saying, "Oh, wow, what a charitable nuance. Really appreciate that. That really makes a difference there." No, no. They're looking at me who's just saying, "Yeah, I'm just going to wear the label cuz cuz you're going to call me a Christian nationalist no matter what I do. If you're a Bible-believing Christian, Guess what? You're a Christian nationalist. Yeah, sure. You can, to blue in the face, you can, you know, not call yourself that, but you're going to be called that by everybody else. And so all that being said, you know, I wanted to draw out the, the real theological distinctions because I think we can do patriarchy better. I think we can do it more biblically. And I think there actually are some pitfalls and failures. And so I know, and it does matter. There's a difference between me and Bill Gothard. There's a difference between me and Michael Perl. There is a difference between someone who's reformed and someone who is Arminian. There's a difference between boomer con theology that's existed for 15 minutes versus robust, historical, confessional Christianity. And that's the resurgence. It's coming from that. And it matters. And it makes a difference. However, in terms of the enemy, in terms of their perspective, there's no difference at all. Bill Gothard, Doug Wilson, same thing. Michael Pearl, Michael Foster, same thing. Right? Jim Bob Duggar, Joel Webin, same thing. And that's the real enemy that we're facing. And for them, the doctoral distinctives that are real and objective and matter don't matter. Not to them. And that's why we need to be able to watch a documentary like this, or don't. Feel free not to. But if you must, if you do, we need to be able to watch a documentary like this. We need to be able to see the real failures, learn from them, do better, hold to better doctrine, more biblical doctrine, but also at the end of the day, realize that the real play, the forest, not just individual trees, but the forest is that the God-haters hate all of us we're all christian nationalists to them we're all abusive patriarchal guys to them and if we think that for them for the enemy that our articulation of theological distinctions is going to matter we're just we're naive we're kidding ourselves so we we better get used to being hated we better get used to being hated and we better have a plan And we better have some grit, some gravitas, a spine, some courage. Well, we're not going to make it. We're just not going to make it. All right. One last time. Important announcement. Blueprints for Christendom. 2.0. 2.0. This is our spring conference, March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. That's a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of next year, 2024. We've got Douglas Wilson, Brian Sovey, Dr. Joe Boot, myself, and the newest edition that we're announcing today is that Michael Foster from It's Good to Be a Man has joined our lineup. He's going to be talking about biblical patriarchy. And at one point during the conference, it's actually going to be on Friday, that's March 1st, we're going to have a 90-minute panel with myself and Michael Foster and Doug Wilson and also Eric Kahn from Hardman Podcast. The four of us, Eric, Michael, Doug, and myself, are going to do a 90-minute panel all about biblical patriarchy. And it's going to just be a further fleshing out uh, discussion of some of the things that I've talked about in today's episode. You're not going to want to miss this conference, so go and register uh, as soon as possible. You can go to rightresponseconference.com Again, that's rightresponseconference.com to register today. Thanks for tuning in and God bless. Can I be frank with you for just a second right here at the end? Look, some of you guys, you're financially supporting this ministry, and from the bottom of my heart, I say thank you. I cannot thank you enough. However, some of you, you just, you can't afford it. In fact, some of you, you shouldn't afford it. Let's be honest. I mean, we're living in Joe Biden's ridiculous economy. Our nation and our totalitarian political elites lost their minds over the last three years due to COVID. We have written checks that we simply cannot cash. It doesn't matter if people change the definition of a recession. We are living in a recession right now regardless. Some of you are struggling to afford a carton of eggs at the grocery store. You cannot support financially this ministry at this time, nor should you, but you could still help us tremendously. I am asking you please, if you're willing to do so, take one minute of your time. Leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, whatever that might be. This is the way the system works. We want to be innocent as doves, but shrewd as vipers. We need to be strategic. You leave us a five-star review, and our podcast shows up for more people. And the Word of God and courageous theology applied in practical ways to every realm of life gets out there. Help us get it out there. Thanks for tuning in.